Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I have a great war at my borders. Without help and abandoned. I don't see any lord armed and mounted on a horse, showing his vigor to defend my state. The whole world is frightened as they hear the cries of France and the strength of Italy seems to be sunken. It worries me not to die, to perish in my fortress while I might make my enemies languish in blood and death with my ready artillery that I planted all around them. I want to lose my battle and to die with honour, but mine is also the suffering of all of Italy, of every duke and great lord. They do not know their error and I am placed in the middle of the flame. They need to purge this place. If not, they will have to think well about what is to come. The Lamenta Caterina Sforza by Marcelio Compagnon, 4.13, Katerina Sforza, a daughter of iniquity. Last time, we saw Katerina Sforza take control of her cities of Imola and Forli after the murder of her first husband. Using her guile, courage and willingness to challenge entrenched gender norms to secure her position in power in the snake pit that was the politics of Renaissance Italy. She had survived the death of Pope Sixtus IV, and that of the antagonistic Pope Innocent VIII. But today, we will see her take on her greatest foes yet, the Borgias. Now, we will be covering the Borgias in a great deal more detail in the next miniseries, so please do forgive me if I don't cover them in the minute detail that you may be expecting. Trust me, their time will come. But before we get going today, I would like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. 
1492 is quite possibly the most significant year in the history of Europe. It saw the end of the Reconquista in Spain, and the union of the non-Portuguese part of Iberia under the crown of Ferdinand and Isabella. It also saw the voyage of Christopher Columbus and the beginning of the subjugation of the Americas. In France, the young King Charles VIII wrested control of the kingdom from his elder sister, who had been acting as regent. That year he signed the Treaty of Etape with England, that ended, for the moment at least, the lingering hostility from the Hundred Years' War. His marriage to Anne of Brittany finally united the territory that we think of as modern France under royal control, allowing him to look beyond his borders for glory. In Italy, the man hailed as the peninsula's peacekeeper, Lorenzo de Medici, died. He had survived various papal plots to have him killed to essentially hold northern Italy in an uneasy peace. It may not have seemed that way in the episode so far, but this part of Italy had largely been free of war for all of Caterina's life, with only a few minor conflicts such as the Salt War punctuating a period that saw the proliferation of some of Europe's greatest art. Milan, Florence, Venice, Naples and Rome had spent most of the first half of the 15th century at loggerheads, but for the second half had been largely at peace. With Lorenzo's death, war would return. Over in Milan, Caterina's home city, a power struggle was developing that would prove the catalyst for that war. Her younger brother, Gian, had succeeded as a minor, with her uncle Ludovico ruling on his behalf. Even though he was now 20 years old, he showed no interest in taking the reins of power. However, his new wife, Isabella of Aragon, daughter of the King of Naples and distant cousin of the King of Spain, was no one's supplicant. She immediately began butting heads with Ludovico and his new wife, Beatrice d'Este, the daughter of the Duke of Ferrara. Though Isabella of Aragon was Duchess of Milan, Beatrice ruled the roost at court, leading her to complain that she was, quote, the most unhappily married woman in the world, which really is quite a claim, and one which her cousin Catherine would later say really should have belonged to her. So we have quite the powder keg here. And to thoroughly mix my metaphors, it's time to insert the final piece of the 1492 puzzle. In August of that year, Pope Innocent VIII died and was replaced by the godfather of Caterina's eldest son, Octavian, the Spanish Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia, now styled as Pope Alexander VI. An expansionist France, an energised Spain, with relatives in the court of Naples, a power struggle in Milan, and a peninsula unmuzzled after its elder statesman had kicked the bucket. And, of course, Caterina was sat right in the middle of it, minding her own business. It would not be until 1494, though, that what history has dubbed the First Italian War broke out. King Alfonso of Naples finally snapped at the lack of respect shown for his daughter in the court of Milan and took a threatening stance against the northern duchy. He made agreements with Pope Alexander and Medici Florence to allow his army to march their territories. All that stood between the gathering army of Naples and the gates of Milan were the cities of Forli and Imola. Ludovico, worried about the stack of enemies lining up against him, sought help from France. Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, 
the nephew of the former Pope Sixtus and relative of Caterina's late husband, journeyed to France and offered King Charles the chance to press his own ancestral claim to Naples if he were to support Milan. Charles agreed, and soon French soldiers were pouring over the Alps to reinforce Milan. And just as they arrive, Duke Gian of Milan somewhat, conveniently and suspiciously, died. Most suspected Ludovico of poisoning his nephew. Suspicions that only increased when he arrested Gian's wife Isabella and usurped the throne, becoming the new Duke of Milan. Now Caterina was caught between a rock and a hard place here. On one side were the Sforzas, represented by her uncle Ludovico. She had always felt strong personal loyalty to her family, and they were the only faction that had always come through for her. On the other hand, she only held her position as regent at the behest of the Pope, who had lined up behind Naples. Representatives from both sides came to her court, and she listened to their arguments, though they were somewhat perturbed to see her young lover Giacomo Feo present at all of these meetings. Indeed, he was becoming something of a gatekeeper, deciding who saw Caterina, and even becoming the general-in-chief of her army. Eventually, though, it was economic concerns that directed her support. Milan had never provided her with any financial reward for loyalty, a grievance exploited by Pope Alexander, who promised Caterina a generous stipend in return for support, along with the fief of San Mauro. This betrayal would not go unanswered, and soon French troops were at the gates of the fortress of Madano near Imola. Caterina appealed for aid from her new allies, but none came. Mordano was stormed, the garrison massacred, and the resulting sack was brutal in the extreme. Caterina was furious at Naples for ignoring her people in their hour of need, and recognised that further resistance to the Franco-Milanese alliance was useless. She switched sides, writing in a letter to the Medicis, quote, There was no need to treat me in this way. I have kept our treaty, and done more than I was obliged to. With Caterina now on side, the French were free to advance south, easily taking Tuscany en route to smashing the Neapolitans at the Battle of Fonovo. Charles crowned himself King of Naples, but didn't stay long, heading back north soon after. While the fate of Italy was being decided, there was a power struggle taking place in Caterina's court. Her son, Octavian, was now 16, old enough to take over power from his mother and her lover, Giacomo Feo. He chafed under Feo's presumption of authority, and in one instant confronted him in a venomous tirade. Feo responded by slapping him right across the face. Octavian wasn't short of supporters, and they took matters into their own hands. In August 1495, Giacomo and Caterina were travelling back from a picnic in the woods when two assassins stopped them as they returned to Forli. Giacomo was stabbed in the back, pulled from his horse and then violently assaulted. For the third time in her life, Caterina saw a man she loved murdered. But unlike the slayings of her father and husband, this took place right in front of her eyes. She reacted quickly spurring her horse to full gallop as she raced for the safety of Rivaldino. Her revenge would be swift and savage. The plot's ringleaders expected to receive adulation, but instead were ostracised and hunted down. 
the lead assassin was executed rather macabrely in a graveyard, his head cleaved in twain. His family, including his wife and children, were thrown down a spiked well at Revaldino and left to die. Every extended family member was jailed, lynched or exiled and their properties ransacked. The other conspirators and their kin met with a similar fate. A whole district of Imola, populated by those opposed to Feo, was razed to the ground. I could go on, but I think you get the picture. At least 38 people died, with many more tortured, imprisoned or exiled. It was murderous revenge of almost Stalinist proportions. While all of this was going on, Katerina's son Octavian was hiding out, nervously, in a friend's house. He was known to hate Feo, and was close to several of the murderers. Now, with his supporters being purged all around him by his furious mother, he must have worried what she would do next. She was ruthless and angry. You wouldn't want to be in his shoes. Armed soldiers eventually brought him to meet with his mother, and they had a ding-dong argument, airing out grievances that went back years. He was rightfully the Count of Forley, but his mother held all the power. She placed him under house arrest, and when one of her stepsons objected, she threw him in the dungeon where he would stay for 18 long months. Tales of Caterina's bloodlust and treatment of her own children spread throughout Italy, dragging her reputation further through the mud. In the eyes of the ruling men around her, these were not the actions of a just ruler, This was the murderous rampage of a lustful woman who, in the words of Pope Alexander, committed, quote, unheard of acts of bloodthirstiness, committed to satisfy her passions, which, coming from a Borgia, appears a little rich. The next few months were hard for Caterina and her people. French soldiers rampaging around Italy spread syphilis to all and sundry, while the winter was the coldest on record. Katerina knew that full bellies keep the assassins away, so she bought vast amounts of grain and salt from her own purse to distribute to the poor and destitute. While the needy starved in other cities, Katerina's people survived. Two people that sadly did not, though, were her third son Giovanni and sister Bianca, who both died in short order. These difficult times seemed to have awoken a spirit of reconciliation in Katerina. Octavian was released, and she arranged a marriage for him to the daughter of her old friend Giovanni Bentivoglio, the ruler of Bologna. But Caterina's newly found serenity was shattered when her son's fiancé abruptly called off the engagement and took holy orders. Caterina, who already suspected that Bentivoglio may have been involved in Giacomo Fea's murder, was furious. She complained of being, quote, atrociously provoked, I tolerated this with much patience, yet fury often weakens patience, and often encourages the wicked to do even worse. However, she did then promise in the same letter to, quote, tend towards forgiveness rather than vendetta. Having failed to secure for her son a wife, she instead got him a military career. Sforzas were men and women of arms and experience in war would be crucial in establishing his reputation. She secured employment for him in the mercenary army of Florence through her friend Giovanni de' Medici, more on him later, and he achieved modest success. She then secured a lucrative church career for her son Cesare, 
with him inheriting much of the benefices of her late brother-in-law, Cardinal Riario, while her daughter Bianca was promised to Astori Manfredi, the ruler of the town of Faenza that lay between Imran and Forli, though that marriage would later be called off. Which brings us back to Florence. The Medici banking clan dominated the city, but in 1494, the family head, Piero, who has become known to history as Piero the Unfortunate, was expelled from the city after making a humiliating deal with the invading French. Florence instituted a kind of free republic under the reforming gaze of the monk Girolamo Savonarola, but also brought to prominence a cadet branch of the Medicis who named themselves the Popolani, or the commoners. They cast themselves as anti-Medici while still reaping the rewards of their family name and prominence. The most notable of them we've already met, Giovanni de' Medici il Popolani, or Giovanni the Commoner. He was anything but, a wealthy aristocrat who travelled around Italy making business deals, hiring mercenaries and aggrandizing Florence. He was 30 years old, or about four years Caterina's junior, with apparently boyish charms and a worldly education. He was a frequent visitor at Revaldino, with his central goal being to bring Caterina into the Franco-Florentine orbit. The First Italian War had entered a new phase, with France and Florence now facing the Holy League of the Pope, Venice, Naples, Milan and the Holy Roman Empire. Caterina had more or less managed to keep her people out of the war. Forley and Imola, well strategically placed, were not powerful enough to move the needle much. Being a daughter of Milan, and holding her title and lands by papal consent, Caterina was inclined towards the Holy League, but her steadfast neutrality puzzled many. Her uncle, Duke Ludovico of Milan, was convinced that Giovanni de' Medici's romantic attentions were preventing her from joining his righteous cause. And he wasn't far wrong. Giovanni was making quite the impression on Caterina. While hostile sources once again paint her as a lustful, sex-mad despot, the reasons for her growing close to Giovanni are not hard to justify. He was wealthy and liberal with it, allowing her to finally live the kind of luxurious life she had not lived since her days in Rome. The city's coffers filled with money, and convoys of grain began arriving from Florence. But, most of all, Caterina appears to have found a soulmate. Girolamo Riario was an arranged marriage of convenience. Giacomo Feo had been a lusty passion. Giovanni de' Medici was a meeting of minds. She had finally found a man as well-read as she, as interested in science and discovery. He even got on well with her children. Most of all, though, Giovanni seems to have tempered some of her more impulsive tendencies. He encouraged her to write to Savonarola, who urged her to redouble her efforts to support the poor. Quote, Charity extinguishes sins as water puts out fire. Employ every care and attention to dispense justice to your subjects. She took this advice, supporting religious houses and shrines, which rewarded her by praying for her immortal soul. She had a lot of blood on her hands, and so needed more than one good word to the man upstairs when she finally met her maker. Caterina did not hide her love affair with Giovanni, but when she became pregnant in the summer of 1497, 
she married him in secret. She wanted her child to avoid the shame of bastardy, not that it had held her back, but equally feared the reaction of her uncle and the Pope. However, the secret did not remain secret for long. When he found out, the Milanese ambassador was furious at being lighted by Caterina. Quote, Cursed is the man who places his faith in men, and even more so, he who trusts women. The Doge of Venice blamed the Duke of Milan, writing that, quote, Her uncle should make sure she understands her role and duties in the present state of Italy. This marriage brought Imola and Forli firmly into the hands of Florence, and brought the armies of Venice to her lands, raiding local villages and castles. But if they thought this would intimidate Caterina, then they did not know their foe. In a letter to her uncle, she wrote defiantly, quote, When Venice attacks, I will have spirit enough to defend myself. If I must lose because I am a woman, I want to lose like a man. But then came tragedy. Her new husband had been stricken by gout and had travelled to the hot baths in Bagno to recuperate. He suddenly became very ill and Caterina rushed to be by his side. He would die in her arms the next day. Caterina would be with many men in her life and even love a few, but none won her heart as much as Giovanni de' Medici. His death would have a lasting sting for he had brought her into the Italian wars, and his death weakened Florence's resolve to defend her new ally. So when the Venetian attack came, Florence only sent a small force to help Caterina. Her soldiers repelled the attack, but the message was clear. She was on her own. There were also larger forces at play. In 1498, King Charles of France died and was succeeded by his cousin, Louis XII. Like his predecessor, he wanted the throne of Naples, and so made a deal with Venice and the Pope. Together, they agreed to attack the Duchy of Milan, divvy up its territory, and then advance south through the Romagna and on to Naples. Alongside this, Pope Alexander had hatched a plan to rid himself of this meddlesome countess. He proposed a marriage between her son Octavian and his daughter Lucrezia Borgia, sweetening the deal with all sorts of lands and titles. However, Caterina was not fooled, for she well knew to be wary of Borgia's bearing gifts. She knew that this marriage could only lead to her being forced to surrender her regency in favour of her son, and so rejected the marriage offer. Moreover, as we shall see, she knew that Borgia saw marriage only as a means for temporary expediency, not a permanent commitment. The French betrayal of Milan, while exceedingly dangerous for Caterina's defensive position, did at least bring her uncle back onto her side of the Italian wars. Unfortunately, it brought a new man onto the board, one who would prove her most ardent opponent yet, Cesare Borgia. In July 1499, a 29-year-old Florentine diplomat arrived in Forli. Niccolo Machiavelli was there to renegotiate a contract to supply troops to the Florentine army, while steadfastly avoiding any guarantees to defend Forli if it came under attack. 
Pope Alexander had just labelled Katerina as a, quote, daughter of iniquity, a term from the Old Testament referring to evil tyrants. His son, Cesare Borgia, was leading a mighty army in the Romagna, deposing rulers and taking over their territories. She was in a difficult diplomatic spot. Milan, her strongest ally, was about to come under attack from France and Venice and would be totally preoccupied with their own defence. She had tied her fortunes to Florence when she married a Medici and even after his death needed their support. So the stakes were pretty high for this meeting. Still early in his career, Machiavelli was keen to test his skills against Caterina, widely viewed as one of the canniest and most ruthless rulers in Italy. She may not have been well-liked, but she was revered and respected. They met on the walls of Rivaldino, and the talk was pleasant and friendly, but it was all a game. Caterina offered the services of her son and his troops, and Machiavelli wrote back saying things were going well. But then she played her next card, demanding that Florence sign a formal alliance. She had defied Venice and the Pope by supporting Florence, and now they were showing, quote, ingratitude for one who had done more than any other ally. Machiavelli, chastened, wrote back to Florence asking for instructions. They needed her support, but Caterina was playing hardball. He thought he could buy her off with the promise of gold and a lucrative contract for her son, but she wasn't an easy date. The next day, she paraded her troops in front of the diplomat, demonstrating the quality of their training and equipment. After the show of strength, she once again demanded a formal alliance in return for her men, but Machiavelli would only offer a verbal promise. Caterina initially agreed to this compromise, but then changed her mind, realising perhaps that verbal promises aren't worth the paper they're not written on. She apologised to Machiavelli, but said that, quote, the more things are discussed, the better they are understood. Machiavelli therefore left empty-handed, feeling embarrassed and humiliated by his failure to charm the Lady of Forley. Like so many men before, he thought that a man as impressive as he could not fail to bend this mere woman to his will. His failure rankled with him, leading to his unfavourable depictions of Caterina in his Florentine histories and discourse on Livy. Yet you can detect a grudging respect in his writing. Game, after all, recognises game. That summer saw disaster build on disaster for Caterina. Ludovico, her only son born from her marriage to Giovanni de' Medici, fell gravely ill and barely survived. Soon after that, the Black Death returned to Italy, rampaging through the Romagna and forcing Caterina to seal off the city and quarantine entire districts to restrict its spread. Once again, Caterina showed great care to ensure her poorest citizens were given free food and medical treatment, and the results spoke for themselves. Less than 200 people died in this outbreak, far fewer than her neighbours, and an example to us all in how to deal with a pandemic. But no sooner had this danger passed than shocking news came from Milan. Her uncle's forces had deserted him, forcing him to seek asylum with the Emperor Maximilian, who was married to Caterina's sister. Her spies in Florence and Paris then passed on grave news. The Pope was insisting that his son Cesare be allowed free reign to attack Caterina. 
the Florentines would do nothing, and in return they would be spared from attack. Her ambassador to France was blunt. Quote, Everyone is waiting for your undoing and ruin, most of all Rome, from whence comes all this evil. For his part, Pope Alexander formally revoked her family's right to rule Imola and Forli, ordering Caterina to leave immediately. Fearing Florentine sympathies towards Caterina, he also spread around some fake news, accusing her of plotting to poison him. These brazen lies were treated with the disdain they deserved, but while Caterina would have Florence's thoughts and prayers, in practice there was little they would do. Her friends, the Bentivoglios of Bologna, also did not put up a fight against the advancing French. She was on her own. But as we know, Caterina was never better than when her back was up against the wall. She secured the loyalty of her subjects and immediately made preparations to defend her territory. She ordered all farms near the city to be razed to the ground, including her own lands. The land would be scorched, with no succour allowed for the advancing army of Cesare Borgia. There would be no shelter from her guns or archers. The area around the fortress would become a killing field. She stocked Rivaldina with enough supplies to survive a long siege. 15th century warfare was an expensive business. She could not defeat the French army of Cesare Borgia, but she may be able to outlast it. She wrote to her friend, quote, We will not abandon our home, but we will defend our possessions as long as we can, and perhaps they will not find it as easy as they think. The hammer struck in December, and the city of Imola was besieged and surrendered. All that was left was Forli. Her sons departed for the safety of Florence. They would not be hostages in this fight. Also, they had always been riarios at heart. They did not have the resolve of the Sforzas. She was the granddaughter of a codottiero, the scioness of a family that had won and then maintained their power by force of arms. She did not fear Cesare Borgia. She feared no man. The Folavesi, however, did not share her resolve. They feared the retribution of Cesare Borgia, a man whose brutal methods had won in the nickname the Antichrist. Leaders of the city betrayed Caterina, surrendering it to Cesare Borgia without a shot being fired. Caterina responded with customary defiance, firing into the walls of her own city from Rivaldino, at the homes of the men who had once more betrayed her. So, once again, it all came down to the fortress of Rivaldino. It was there that she would make her stand. Cesare's French army pillaged the city, raping women and girls, murdering their male relatives and drinking themselves silly. Caterina could only watch, with a mixture of horror, but also righteous anger. In the somewhat misogynistic words of the chronicler Samuto, she saw this as, quote, just punishment for a city that had surrendered like a whore. The siege began on the 19th of December, 1499. But though the French guns pummeled the walls, they held firm. Every day, Caterina would strap on her cuirass, a specially crafted custom piece of armour designed for her, and climb the walls of the city to stare down her enemies. Very few such pieces were ever made for women, and this was hers. She was visible throughout the fortress and the men outside. 
they knew that the Tigress of Forley was ready to fight. Cesare Borgia was getting annoyed. He was not used to being forced to wait and defied like this. He had expected a cakewalk, but found a well-prepared, well-defended fortress commanded by an indomitable general. If he could not intimidate Caterina by a show of force, perhaps he could show off his legendary charm and flirt his way into Rivaldino. On Boxing Day, he approached the city under a flag of truce and called for Caterina. Dressed in her armour, she climbed the ramparts and faced her enemy. Cesare was astride his white charger, dressed not to do battle, but to court. This would be a seduction. Quote, Madonna, you who are learned in history know that the fortune of states is subject to change. This is the moment to put your genius and knowledge to the test. I beseech you to surrender this fort of your own free will to me. I promise you the most advantageous conditions and will guarantee that the Pope assigns states to you and revenues worthy of yourself and your sons. You can take up your residence in Rome if it so please you. Thus you will rescue yourself and yours from a greater danger than you can be aware of. You will avoid the horrible sight of bloodshed. You will gain the reputation of a woman whose wisdom is equal to her courage and be spared the derision with which Italy would deride one who persisted in pitting herself against overwhelming numbers. Yield, Madonna, yield. She responded, quote, Fortune favours the brave and abandons the cowardly. I am the daughter of one who knew no fear and am determined to walk in his steps until death. Well do I know how changeful is the fortune of states. History I have read, it is true, but it would be a vile thing if I, forgetting who my father was and who my forebears were, consented to exchange my estate for that half of a subject. I thank you for the good opinion you say you have of me, but as to the promises you make in the Pope's name, I must reply that as your father's pretext for dethroning me have been judged false, iniquitous and despicable the world over, so do I hold those promises of yours and the Pope's to be false and lying. Italy knows the value of a Borgia's word. My troops suffice for my defence, and I do not believe that yours are invincible. If, after having refused every condition, and scorned every weakness unworthy of the name of Sforza, I am crushed by you, the world shall learn that I, and those whom with me these wars enclose, take comfort in the thought that they who die at their post are unforgotten, and that often their cause survives them and triumphs. She then saluted Borgia and departed, leaving him spluttering with rage, not waiting for a reply. He was not used to anyone, much less a woman, treating him with such disdain. This would not do. With the negotiations concluded, the guns continued to bellow. Cesare had brought with him some of the most high-tech artillery in the world, including one nine-foot-long cannon called La Teverina. His guns bombarded the walls day after day, but to minimal effect. Rivaldino had been designed to withstand the siege, and it was proving impregnable. Cesare became desperate, issuing a reward of 10,000 ducats, an enormous sum of money, for whoever delivered Caterina to him. But her people stood firm. 
news of her defiance spread far and wide. The diarist Antonio Grimello wrote, quote, There has never been seen a woman with so much spirit, while a prominent Venetian called her, quote, a female of great governance. Finally, the stories spreading of Caterina were not of a woman of loose morals and pretensions beyond her gender. Now, she was a rallying point against the excesses of the Borgias, and an example of valour that men would do well to emulate. Some weeks into the siege, though, something gave. Specifically, a portion of the southern walls, which collapsed under the intense artillery fire into the moat, forming a makeshift bridge. While her soldiers scrambled to create makeshift defences in the breach, Cesare rallied his troops for an all-out assault. When it came, they arrived in such overwhelming force that they crashed through the defences, and the city became a charnel house of violence, rape and fire. All that stood between Cesare and his prize was the main tower, which still held firm. Caterina was not cowering behind the walls. She was in the thick of the fighting, sword in hand, armour glistening in the sun. For two hours she fought, killing and wounding many men, astounding men who had never seen a woman so skilfully wield a blade. This gave rise to a popular saying at a time, that when the French thought they would be confronted by men, they found a woman. And when they thought to encounter a woman, they found a man. Even as her fellow defenders fell beside her, she fought on and was only defeated by treachery. During a lull in the fighting, Tresere Borgia rode up and was invited into the tower, the only part of the fortress that had not yet fallen. As he implored Caterina to surrender, a heavy hand clamped down on the Countess's shoulder. A French captain, who had been let inside, said, quote, My lady, you are now a prisoner. Caterina was captured. But because it had been a French soldier that had accepted her surrender, she was legally under the protection of the French crown. This, sadly, did not offer much protection, as she suffered the consequences of defying the Borgias. That night, she was repeatedly raped by Cesare Borgia, who took out his toxic anger on his defenceless prisoner. His brutal treatment of her only increased the sympathy and admiration of Italy. Even Venice expressed its admiration, saying, quote, Even though this woman is an enemy of the Venetian state, she truly deserves infinite praise and immortal memory. While a contemporary French historian wrote, quote, Unto her feminine body she had a masculine courage. She had no fear of danger. No matter how close it approached, she never backed down. All her life, Caterina had been castigated for daring to act in the same way as her male counterparts. They damned her for not staying in her corner, calling her a whore and a fool. Now, as she faced the horror of male violence, they got around this by essentially deeming her as an honorary man, a virago. And as an honorary man, her actions were worthy of praise of the highest order. Cesare had won, but his victory was not complete. Caterina's prescient decision to send her sons away meant that claimants to the title were still at large. Moreover, they were Florentine citizens through Caterina's marriage to a Medici, so couldn't be legally extradited. Moreover, the French did not take kindly to the treatment being meted out by a woman supposedly under their protection. However, their objections were bought off by hard cash. Cesare essentially bought her with the full reward money, 
and processed her out of Revaldino towards Rome, where she would begin the next stage of her life as a captive of the Pope. Her brutal treatment and humiliation at the hands of Cesare Borgia had not dampened her spirit. The Mantuan ambassador described her as, quote, still furious, which, yeah, wouldn't you be? At least now, though, she could have a measure of comfort and some freedom. She was allowed to walk the courtyards of the Belvedere Palace, smell the orange trees and hear the tinkling of the fountains. She even had a few servants and a priest to attend to her. But a cage, however gilded, is still a cage. She still held one card, her claims to Forley and Imola. She was under constant pressure to give them up, and didn't get much support from her sons, for whom she was still fighting. They wanted her to give up those claims for valuable church benefices. But she knew that once she sand over her lands, she would be of no more use to the Borgias. She would disappear, or be found lifeless in the Tiber like so many of their other enemies. She had one last hope. Her uncle Ludovico had retaken Milan in February 1500 from the French, meaning that once more she had a powerful ally in charge of one of Italy's great city-states. He began to gather support in Rome to get her freed, but he was then betrayed again and thrown into a French prison to rot. Her brother, Cardinal Ascanio Sforza, was captured by the Venetians. The power of the Sforzas had been broken. Caterina was on her own. Without much left to lose, she launched a desperate escape attempt. Her plan was exposed, and she found herself taken from her comfortable captivity and thrown into a dungeon in her old haunt, the Castel Sant'Angelo, the fortress where she had first made her name and defied the Vatican. Sixteen years had passed since then, and the Borgias had spent the time wisely, turning it into a totally impenetrable fortress and inescapable prison. Her cell was small and uncomfortable, especially for someone used to a life of luxury. She was isolated, on her own. She feared every meal was poisoned, every approaching guard her assassin. It was an oppressive atmosphere of fear and torment. But even here she managed to defy the Borgias. They had planned a vast show trial for her, but she made it clear that if that were to happen, she would outline every crime ever inflicted by the Borgias. She knew enough secrets to bring them tumbling down. She could respond to every accusation with damaging truths. So they abandoned their plans and left her in the jail cell. Cesare got his revenge by playing cruel pranks on her. One day, for example, she was awakened early and brought to a courtyard and was told she was to be executed. Then two men were hanged before her eyes, before she was then informed that their deaths had bought her a little more time. This psychological torture took its toll, but she remained resolute. Days turned into weeks and weeks to months and a whole year passed, but Katerina survived. In July 1502, a French army camped outside of Rome on its way south for another attack on Naples. One of its captains, Yves d'Alegre, walked up to the Castel Sant'Angelo and demanded to see Caterina Sforza. He had been present at the Battle of Revaldino and had seen his men sell the violated countess to Cesare Borgia. After being admitted and seeing her desperate state, he delivered an ultimatum. Free the countess or he will return with a French army 
and they would do it themselves. Pope Alexander agreed, but only if she renounced her titles. With the promise of safety away from Borgia captivity and her children having abandoned her, Katerina finally relented. Seventeen years earlier, she had ridden out of the castle, clad in armour, sword by her side, in triumph. Now she rode out slowly, frail and tired, bloody but unbowed, the menace of the years having found her unafraid. She settled in Florence, where she had inherited a great deal of property from her husband Giovanni de' Medici. She was also reunited with her daughter and youngest children, and settled down for a quiet life of exile. But drama followed Caterina wherever she went. Her elder sons pestered her for money, money she didn't have. She sold jewels and possessions, but soon there was little of value left that she could pawn. Then her brother-in-law, Lorenzo de' Medici, tried to evict her from her palace, claiming it as her own, and also claimed custody of his nephew, thus her son Giovanni, who had changed his name from Ludovico. She refused. She had fought kingdoms, sieges and borgias. She could see off one greedy Medici. She had fought armies with force of arms, and now she did battle in the courts. It was a long, gruelling fight, but she did prevail. She found some solace in with the sisters of the Morassi convent. She would stay there periodically, finding peace and calm within its walls. She never took holy orders, but found a real kinship with the nuns. She did have one last trip into the limelight. In 1503, Pope Alexander died, and after another placeholder pope died after only a month, was replaced by Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, who you may remember from other parts of this episode, as the cousin of Girolamo Riario, Caterina's first husband. Forley had recently been conquered by her former suitor, Antonio Maria Odolafi, and many wished her to launch one final campaign to reclaim her lost city. However, it soon became apparent that Caterina did not have the popular support to launch such a campaign, while her son was too feckless and lazy to do it himself. The cities of Forli and Imola would fall under direct papal rule. Caterina would remain in exile in Florence for the rest of her life. She spent her days with her youngest children, and continued her interest in botany and alchemy, Her various experiments and discoveries would be recorded in a manuscript called The Experiments, which was published after her death. In 1509, she caught a fever and died at the age of 46. She was buried at the Murati convent in Florence in a simple ceremony. The convent still stands, but unfortunately her remains were lost in the 19th century when it was converted into a prison. Caterina Sforza is a truly remarkable historical figure. A woman who ruled in a man's world, who did not fear to demand what was hers, who was continually underestimated and turned society's expectations on their head, who wore a dress covered with a cuirass, who carried a sword strapped below a pregnant belly. She was no saint. She could be cruel to her enemies, and her temper and thirst for revenge saw many die. But in that, she was no different from her contemporaries, and she certainly paid a high price for her mistakes. Notably, that great student of real politique, Niccolò Machiavelli, in all his study of rulership, never questions the right of women to rule. 
In his descriptions of Catherine's actions, he questions her tactics and her methods, but never her fundamental right to govern. Katerina modelled herself consciously on men, most notably her father, whom she idolised, but was also not afraid to use her gender to her advantage when it suited her. She may have ended her career in exile after being defeated in battle, but had defended her lands and her honour personally, sword in hand, blade swimming in the blood of her enemies. She may have married a Riario and a Medici, but she was born and died a Sforza.